Thank you for listening to the Literally Podcast. Host of the Literally Podcast, Case Johnston, has a new book. Case, what's your new book about? So the new book, Let the Wild Grasses Grow, is a reimagination of my grandparents, uh, John Cordova and Del Chavez, what their lives have been like in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s if they had an opportunity to uh, go to school past the sixth grade and, mm. and not have... And if my grandma did not have her first heart attack at 40 years old. So it's a reimagination of what my Cordova side uh, would have done in this world if given a little bit more chances. And the book takes the protagonists through the Dust Bowl, through the Great Depression, through through rallies of the KKK in, in, in rural Colorado in the 1920s and into World War II. So pick it up if you can at toryhousepress.org, at your local in, independent bookstore, or at Amazon if you must. Awesome. Thanks, Case. Yep. This is Case Johnson. This is Literally Podcast. We are broadcasting from Banyan One at the Monarch in Historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. Today, our guest is David Gessner. Uh, we are talking about his book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. David Gessner is the author of Leave It As It Is, a journey through, three, through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness and the New York Times bestselling All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. Chair of the Creative Writing Department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and founder and editor-in-chief of Echotone, Gessner lives in in Wilmington, North Carolina, with his wife, the novelist Nina de Gramont, and their daughter, Hadley. Today, David is going to open with a reading, and then he's going to close with a reading. So I'm going to turn off my mic and let you go for it. Thank you, Case. Ogden, the home of Bernard DeVoto, I think, who plays a big part in All the Wild That Remains. This is from the beginning of my book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight looking back from the end of the world. 16 years ago, when our daughter was just a baby, my wife and I took her on a trip to Walden Pond. As we approached the place where Henry David Thoreau's cabin once stood, with my daughter riding up on my shoulders, I said to her, that's where the man lived who ruined your father's life. Ruined in a mostly good way, I meant. I discovered Walden when I was 16 and never quite recovered. I began to question the values of the system I found myself in. The life that men praise and call successful is but one kind, Thoreau wrote. And I hollered, amen. In this way, Thoreau was like a more profound, less musical version of getting stoned and listening to Pink Floyd, but the effect was more lasting. I began to keep a journal in high school, and I keep one to this day. After college, the sentences from Thoreau's book were still rippling outward through my life, affecting the choices I made. To hell with law school or any normal career, I would become a writer. I would value solitude, and I would move to my very own Walden. I've been thinking about Thoreau as COVID-19 sweeps across the country, the obvious stuff, he was America's original social distancer, and the not so obvious. Thoreau can serve as a model of self-reliance, reminding us that pulling back from the world, which at the moment will save lives, has its less dramatic virtues. Having long been a corrective to our compulsive national habits of over-busyness and consumption, he can inspire just such a corrective now, but only if we try to dig below the cliche of him. Because as it happens, Thoreau was not all flowers and acorns, and this man who died at 44 
had some profound and sturdy thoughts, not just about nature, but about death and disaster. There will come a time soon after the pandemic has subsided when we will be trying to make sense of what has happened, when we will tell a story about where we are and where we are going and about how we have changed. For me, at least, Thoreau's ideas will be part of that story. Great. Thank you. That's the opening uh, section from the opening chapter of Gessner's book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, that came out in June, I believe. Right, David? Yeah, it came out in June, which is kind of crazy, considering I finished it in March. (laughs) Yeah, that's a really quick timeline. And I've been lucky enough to like see a lot of your online interviews and watch them the day after on Facebook and so on and so forth. So I'm going to try to avoid a lot of the same questions um, and talk more really about Thoreau when it comes to, because you, Gessner, from reading this book is, is an expert on Thoreau, uh, much more than most other folks that I've read about the author. And I want to talk, and this is, uh, this is one that I don't know if you've gotten yet. You've spent, I'm excited to get one. I haven't, (laughs) if you have, (laughs) if you have just act like it for our audience that you haven't say, Oh my gosh, case you're brilliant. Um, no, um, so you've spent a lot of time with, in, with the words of Thoreau, with the sentences of Thoreau. Um, and I think a lot of the questions that's come your way before is, oh, you know, how did you get this book started? How did it get contracted? What, what was it like to write, to write it so quickly? Um, how do you, you know, how, how did you find yourself relating Thoreau to our current times? All of those, they're all wonderful questions and we can go into them a lot. But I want to start with, with craft. I want to talk about uh, Thoreau when it comes to language. When it comes to that, I mean, you would consider, I'm guessing you would consider, uh, and please correct me, but uh, Thoreau a transcendentalist, right? Within that group or before or after or a starter? Uh, He defined himself against the transcendentalists. He gets lumped with that Mm -hmm. in high school English. Um, But in a way, he's the opposite of a transcendent. I mean, he obviously believes in, occasional euphoric moments, but he's so earthy compared to to the more airy Emerson. So yes, that's the group he's lumped with, but I think he's very particularly himself. Do you see within his writing, within his prose, can you make that tie or that or that disconnect from the transcendentalist through the writing itself, through the sentences itself that um, not only maybe because he really, I mean, he's nitty gritty, not nitty gritty. You know what I mean? But he's in the dirt. Yeah. 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 And he's not, you know, in the sky, maybe for instance. Um, do you think his prose matches that? And does that push, does his prose push against the transcendentalism as much as his subject matter? I think that's a, that is a question I haven't heard before and I'm really interested in it. And I think the obvious contrast to make is with Emerson. Right. And Thoreau famously says, I've never seen him trundle a wheelbarrow through town, which gets at a lot of it. It's also kind of part of the cliche. I mean, I think Emerson is vastly underrated. And Robert Richardson's book, Mind on Fire, which is a great biography of Emerson, shows just how, I mean, the statue, the frozen Emerson we think of now, the greeting card Emerson is not the real Emerson, the live Emerson who's electric. So when I'm, I don't want to make him the whipping boy here mm-hmm. in contrast to Thoreau, because I think he's brilliant. 
And I think like reading American Scholar, I think somebody could be sitting in a college library right now reading that and be fired up to write prose that is relevant to us right now. And I really do feel like in this time of obvious, we're not just predicting climate change, we're living inside it. I just got back from the West, which was on fire and smoke was everywhere and flash floods were everywhere. So I believe we need writers who focus on that subject matter. That said, praising Emerson, Thoreau contrasts himself so much with him. And it is the earthiness. It is the nuggety prose. And simply as a prose writer, um, he does, uh, you know, I, I've called it elsewhere. He does the Monty Python thing of, you know, looking at the stars and then stepping in dog shit. He does the this brilliant kind of, I mean, it's famous for Ed Abbey. It's famous in terms of throwing the rock at the rabbit in desert solitaire. It's these moments of really high flown prose that are piled on really high. And then um, just like nuggety, physical, earthy stuff. Um, like he'll say, you know, this year, um, this year we'll exceed all, and then he'll say that we'll drown out our muskrats. So he always takes it down to the particular. And I don't know that I consciously imitated that in as a younger writer, but I know that that's always really interested me is when somebody quotes, you know, Sartre and then makes a fart joke. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that that seems more like real life. Now, a lot of readers are going to read Thoreau and feel like they're in Sunday school and aren't going to get that experience. And honestly, you say I'm an expert, but I only read Walden straight through for a class I was teaching five years ago. Other than that, I picked in and out of it mm -hmm. um, and really gotten more of the spirit of, of like, not just loving nature, but like saying, screw you <laughs> to people trying to tell me a way to be and it's, it's more the a spirit I've taken from it, but also prose style, which you're pointing out. And I really think he refined that in the workshop of his journal, obviously, millions of words. And, and they don't read like what I just described. They read more diffused, right? But when he puts it into Walden, he, all, he just like tightens it up and makes it every sentence cranks. So, um, so that's something I've tried to emulate from far away. Obviously, I'm not Thoreau and I'm not at that level, but I, I've tried in my own smaller way to emulate that. Do you think this is a growth thing? Because you say at the beginning of the book, you know, you say, well, this is the man who who ruined your father's life. I mean, it's because you fell in love with literature. He helped you fall in love with writing in that way. When you first read him, was it just admiration? And then as you grew as a writer, figuring out the prose, figuring out that that juxtaposition of the high of the the flowery prose with the fart joke right you know with the with with the dirt um did that come through time or did you see that kind of maybe in a way when you were young and you hadn't seen it before from somebody else do you think that played a part in your love of it the prose was secondary for me because i you know joyce carol oates in one of the recent introductions to walden says he's the great poet of adolescence and I think for some of us, particularly those of us who are more type A or have parents who are type A, uh, that Pink Floyd line I read from the beginning is 
appropriate in that we're rebelling against being told this is the way we should be. You know, think it's not it's no shocker that they quote Thoreau in Dead Poet Society when they're meeting, right? Mm-hmm. So that moment, you know, I'm 16 or 17, and a lot of people are. What I'm really reading for him for at that time is an assurance that you don't have to um, follow the trodden path, which, you know, as an older person now seems a little, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it sounds cliche, but it's a little, it's a little, feels a little that way. But at the time it certainly didn't feel cliche. It was like any kind of uh, ticket to rebellion to saying there's another way of being that's separate. So for me, that was, that was really it. It's like, I'm a reader and I believe there are a lot of other readers out there who read so they can put things to use in their lives. And at that time, what I needed was a voice telling me, you don't have to go this direction. You can go the direction you want to be. And as I say in the book, um, whatever else Thoreau is, he's kind of this character who is emphatically himself. And the joke is you get people following him and saying, I'm going to be like Thoreau. But the real thing is he's saying, be like yourself. Again, sounds kind of cliche as you get older, but at that time, at that moment, it's like a, it's a permission slip to, to, to be more like you. Yeah. And that, do you think, and I have other questions about your the book, you know, your, your pathway through the book. But do you think that it takes, do you think a lot of people might miss this opportunity in their life to say, I'm going to be myself because they're not reading? Um, you know, I mean, um, I, I, I took a lot from your book, um, just because of course, you know, as writers, as readers, we tend to associate with the author in the ways in which our brain wants us to associate with the author. You know, we see that we see ourselves in the author, uh, because we naturally do that when we, when we watch movies or when we read books or when we talk to other people. And, you know, I was the same way. I came from a family of accountants Everybody, my dad expected me to be an accountant. Uh, he was going to give me the business. And I said, no, thanks. I want to go be a writer, you know, and me and my, and it feels the very, very same as the way that you outline it in that book. So when it comes to reading and when it comes to reading Thoreau when you were young um, and then coming back to him much later and then coming back to him now as an adult, as a writer, who's, who went on this, went on this journey to write about Thoreau during COVID. I mean, that was a very, very specific, I don't know if you would call it a thesis. I don't know if you would, if you could nail it down to a thesis at the end of this book, but going into it, what do you think, what did you think you were going to write and where did you stray from that? And what did you find? Were there places where that you found you wrote something completely different because you are out in that shed in, in North Carolina and you're spending your time there and you have your, your beer at night and you, you know, and I think there's a point in the, in the, in the book where, you know, there was too much between you and nature. So you pulled it away. Um, and that really spoke to me too, as I, I'm a trail runner. So I spent a lot of my times on the trails. Was there something when you went out, cause I'm guessing you had like a working thesis, you know, when you, when you started sure. this book, uh, did that change or did it change just subtly within the writing that might've surprised you? Anything like that? 
Well, I think as a writer, one of a nonfiction writer um, and a novelist, one of the reasons you hone in or home in actually on a plot is that you are trying to clarify and make pointed diffused experience, right? So the truth is, I had a lot of other things going on during the year. The book itself, like Walden, like every book ever, is false to some degree in that it, you know, if it were a real book of my year, um, it would have been me being really irritated about being chair of our department, and, you know, and, and uh, lots of other things. Right. Um, but it does help by having what you're calling a thesis. Um, it does help to kind of uh, discipline and tighten and sharpen the focus of the year. So pretty early on, I knew uh, because I'd written an article about Thoreau and the pandemic, and it was on other people's minds too. There was a really funny McSweeney's piece that my um, former student was the editor of saying, hey, you idiots, you professors, you said I wasn't relevant anymore, and it turns out I am. Um, uh, it was much funnier than that. So when I got some positive feedback, I, I started to zone in on it, and it just made sense in the year. It made sense in terms of what I was doing with my students, which was taking them out to the beach, even with, though we had masks on. It made sense with what I was doing in my backyard, which was bird watching and going out to the shack, as you point out. It made sense that what was happening in the world, the world was kind of rewilding for a while there, where we saw the mountain lions walking down the main street of Boulder. And then ultimately it made sense in a totally different way when we went out in the streets and protests and civil disobedience. So it made sense. And then you are still tentative. You still don't entirely commit to something like this, or at least I don't, until there's some assurance that this will be the next book. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, the crass world of publication does come into play. But once I got the go ahead, it, it really, it really uh, made me funnel toward this. And Truth be told, I had 18 years worth of essays, notes, journals about North Carolina and had never written a book about North Carolina. So it was also an opportunity not just to focus on my backyard, but to finally write the book about moving to a place that I never expected to be. So those things dovetailed together nicely. And suddenly I was energized. There's a great line in a Walter Jackson Bates biography of John Keats that said, boldness and commitment brought rewards. There's a moment as, as a writer where you've got multiple projects, you're kind of tentatively jumping around, suddenly you say, this is it. And that brings a certain energy with it. Uh, and that energy always excites me. And so I got that going uh, somewhere in late summer. I bombed up to Walden with my family. I was fully into not just living the book, but writing it. One of the ironies is right now, this is probably one of the last interviews for a while I'm going to do about the book, is now that the year is over and I've written the book and publicized the book, now I really kind of want to live more thorough-like. <laughs> In theory, I did it during the year, right? But now I'm just like, hey, I've written two books in the last year. What if I actually do 
what I'm telling other people to do is slow things down a little and live with a, uh, you know, a good margin, which is what Thoreau said to do, which is so antithetical when you think about it, how we're trained to be right now. Um, you said you've heard other interviews, so you know that when I was department chair, which ended about three weeks ago, which is thrilling for me, yeah. I said it was like you know, playing a game of Space Invaders with the friggin' emails coming at me every second and bings and dings and solving the problems of 18 other faculty members who reminded me quite a bit of small children. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, so now I'm in a place where I'm thinking, what if I really do that? Because, you know, the amazing, Thoreau has so many things that are amazing and are not like your average Joe. I mentioned his ability to give things up, his ability not to drink, not to smoke, not to do things, his ability not to crave more and more and more like most of us do. But he also had an attitude toward publication that was partly born of his failure of his first book that he wrote, you know, um, that, that really is impressive. And I think a lot of us in this day and age, you know, we want to post the next thing. We want to publish the next thing. We want to promote the next thing. And to resist that um, seems to me a, a great, impressive feat. That I w And I wish I had more of it. I mean, I'm kind of a natural people pleaser. And he's, he, you know, he was an entertaining guy, but he was not a people pleaser. Mm -hmm. that's, <laughs> and that's impressive to me. Yeah, I'm glad you went in. I'm glad you went into all of that in the sense, and this is, I, I you know, I share this with, so I teach a class for the Creative Nonfiction Foundation, and I like to share my, I like to share the podcast, especially nonfiction podcasts, with them because you know they need other people besides me, my not my voice, right? And I love first off that we when you started that we talked about shaping, you know, shaping nonfiction in the sense that yes, we've got all these other things going on in life, you know, emails, the department chair process, uh, life inside the house, you know, I mean, COVID was not easy for a lot of families in the sense we were put together um, and we weren't going anywhere. We were, you know, on top of each other for 24 hours a day. But with shaping, you know, I think that that speaks a lot to, and so to any students listening to this, this speaks a lot to finding the narrative and finding that what is purposeful in the narrative to get us from point A to point B. Um, and I appreciate you jumping into that, especially kind of, because I think that uh, budding writers believe that everything has to go in. You know, every, you know, if you're writing right. an essay about Thursday, everything on Thursday has to go in. But no, it's only about it's only about Thursday between twelve and one that needs to go in. Um, so I appreciate that, especially from uh, from your point of view. Can I, sure. can I jump in case and say one more thing for yeah, yeah. budding writers of this sort of writing? Uh -huh. So I've read extensively, I guess I would call it nouveau apocalyptic literature mm -hmm. about climate change and, and so much, and, and I admire it. And I'm a great admirer of Bill McKibben, who was a classmate of mine who I mentioned in the book. Um, but so much of it to me seems like journalism uh, no offense to journalism, and seems like uh, a piling on of statistics, which of course New York publishers love and want. Um, and what I'm interested in is, I guess, the psychology of climate change and the psychology of being in these situations. Um, and in that, to that extent, I try to create a character I've developed over the years based on me 
much in the way um, the much reviled Philip Roth might create a, you know, a fictional counterpoint. And that character experiences not just things like fires and floods and climate change, but his own mind and how he works through these things. And so I'm hungry. Granted, that's the kind of writing I like and I do, but I'm hungry for more of that where you combine the virtues of the personal essay, you know, Philip Lopate's great book, mm -hmm. The Art of the Personal Essay, and that personal sense of things with issues as opposed to journalism. And even in places like Harper's, or um, I don't see that as much. I see statements and I see research and I love all that stuff, but I want a personal sensibility there too. And I think there's an opportunity there for our students. My grad, you know, I teach grad creative writing too. And a lot of times they don't take it because they're either too on the memoir side of things. Mm -hmm. And as you say, putting in everything that happens on Thursday or conversely too on the journalistic side. And there's an interesting point in the middle that that's got a lot of possibilities uh, right now. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, you know, and to note, too, that it's it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to do. It's it's a craft technique um, that takes a lot of time to develop is merging the research with narrative and character on the page. And so but I, I, I agree with you. And I think a lot of students really want to strictly write memoir or strictly research and they're uncomfortable in that middle space that you're talking about. I don't think it's that unusual to write memoir. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the equivalent of the fiction writer writing a first novel that's very autobiographical. Mm -hmm. It's how you get your legs. But I think that they're, you know, to point out to them that there are possibilities is kind of exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So I have one question about your daughter and your veganism. <laughs> your your vig what was it? Your vegan what was it a bet? It wasn't a bet. It was more of a challenge, wasn't it? To well, it was kind of a yeah, it was a bet challenge. Yeah. Basically that it's been frustrating. You know, my wife is a novelist. She's got a big novel coming out in February. And the frustration was my daughter, who's now 18, but at the time was 17, was not, or actually at the time was 16, because it was a year before the book, was not reading for pleasure. Right, that's right. That's what it was. And so the deal was, if she read 20 minutes a night, I'd be a vegan the next day. <laughs> yeah. And then you went to Montana. Then I went to Montana, flew in a little plane over the West, which was unbelievably awesome in terms of seeing um, both the good and the bad, the fracking, but also 20 minutes, half an hour, not a human being, trees and beautiful. And we landed in the Yak Valley, which to readers means Rick Bass. Coincidental, I wasn't planning on visiting Rick Bass. It's just where the plane was going. Mm -hmm. And I got there and they were having this kind of intense embroiled meeting about saving the grizzly bears in the Yak Valley. And they were so involved in the meeting that I had to be the impromptu cook. And so Rick Bass handed me a plate, a big platter actually, with a antelope leg on it, and pointed me toward the Weber grill. And my days as a vegan were over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was well, picking at it. And I thought about that scene. Whiskey. Yeah, yeah, I thought about that scene. Um, and I actually read that one to my wife. I said, well, he's got this deal with his daughter. 
because we were on vacation, as you know. And uh, he said he's got he had this deal with his daughter. If she reads, because my son like he's ten, he's not much of a reader either. And so we're kind of dealing with that as well. And I thought I said, okay, well he'll be a vegan. But then he's thrown this this antelope leg, and I thought it would feel so much like the Flintstones, you know, where they throw the leg on the back, the dinosaur leg on the back of the truck or the back of their little car. And it, tilts over and I wouldn't even know how to cook an antelope leg. Is it something that, did you get any instruction from folks or did you? No, I just threw it on there and grilled it. And it barely <laughs> fit on the Weber circumference. Oh, And yeah. you know, I found out the next day that they had, I think they mountain bike from their house in the middle of nowhere with their rifles on their backs and, and, and shot it. So <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's what I. Hey, I believe it. It is Montana. No, I thought about that scene for a really, really long time. And I wanted to ask one more kind of craft question. Sure. When shaping this book, because we got it, kind of got into it there for a little bit. You said you had essays about North Carolina because you have this kind of move between Colorado, the the, the Northeast, and, and uh, North Carolina, correct? You, those have kind of been where uh, you've lived for a good portion of your life. Then you have Thoreau, obviously, who's kind of you use as this guideline. But I mean, I you know, but you know, in some chapters, Thoreau, Thoreau isn't really at the heart of it, which I loved. I love the chapters where it was more about was when it was a lot about you. I really did. I enjoyed that part with the you know with <laughs> tell, right? tell my New York editors. Uh, yeah, well, I can't I've been tell. saying that for years. <laughs> I uh, I can't tell people anything, especially in publishing. Um, but. You know, I loved those chapters where it was you in North Carolina and you and your shed and and those, you know, building it up and then ripping it apart a little bit and then building it back up again and then the storms and the birding. I loved those chapters because, like you said earlier, there was this moment of narrative, but there was also this really deep delve into your own self and kind of where you were during not only the pandemic, but where you are as a husband and as a father and as as someone who's living in North Carolina who never really accepted you were North Carolinan for a very long time and how the books that you wrote took you away from the places that you loved, which I thought it's hilarious, but it sounds like life, right? right? So you had stuff from the past and then you had Thoreau as a guideline and then you had new stuff, you know, living through the year. With each chapter, what what was your kind of procedure, process to grabbing maybe an essay sure. from old North Carolina and living in it and then maybe throw? Well, you know, what I would say to younger writers is um, smash your head up against trying to do longer narratives. Hmm. I mean, my first two books were narratives, but they were really collected essays. Um, and yet it's it's like a poetry collection or something. They were thematically cohesive. And I think it's always hard when you go to the longer narrative, whether it's a novel or narrative nonfiction, and then what happens, and it's this classic thing, and I really believe in momentum as my key word when I talk to my students, whether it's the momentum of getting up every day and writing regularly, or the momentum of learning narrative and working on multiple projects, um, is you become kind of inherently narrative and I have, I'm never going to write as many books as I have outlined on, you know, a piece of paper here at my desk, because once you have that kind of narrative gene or whatever it is instilled in you, the narrative habit, uh, you see books everywhere mm. and you see 
And I was just out west, like I said, and uh, seeing the fires and the floods. And I was at Ken's Light, seldom seen Smith's place where there was a flash flood and I got to witness it. And boom, not only am I experiencing that and feeling bad for the people at Pack Creek and having this visceral physical experience, but I'm the narrative is going like, man, I could write a book about this, right? And so with this, to be more specific in this instance, as soon as I had the Thoreau conceit, I guess I would call it, I knew it was going to move through the year. So, you know, here are a couple of classic um, things you can do. Narrative, you can go on a journey, right? That's a thing. A year is a thing. Anything that gives it kind of a cohesion. I knew it was going to go month by month. And I knew that I knew things were going to come up unbidden by me. I didn't know that in June, suddenly we were going to be coming out of our houses and protesting in the streets and all that. But boy, did that dovetail nicely with Thoreau's thinking about civil disobedience and his influence on Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Um, so you start to see these patterns. And it's just like novelists have said, as soon as you're deeply into it, everything you pick up suddenly is relevant to the story. And you happen to pick up this book about women's softball um, and suddenly you've got a softball player in your plot. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it, and nonfiction is the same way. Uh, maybe a better example than this book even is two previous books. Um, this week, the paperback for Leave It As It Is, which is a story about Teddy Roosevelt and about Bears Ears National Monument and the native fight for that, and about a trip cross country with my nephew. Um, that was a thing where I usually keep outlines back here where it's like kind of trying to play chess on three levels and thinking I need a movement of the road trip. I need thematic things. I need the biography of Roosevelt's life. And that's really fun. Once you once you, once you get better at it, it's fun to start to juggle and play with those things, and to kind of jump cut and move between them. And I think there's a weird congruence of narrative TV at its best now, and nonfiction at its best, where there's a lot of jump cutting, and sometimes you leave the reader viewer not knowing what the hell is going on. I mean, I was a big fan of Watchmen, which is a, a TV series where. A lot of times when you cut to the next scene, you didn't know what, what's going on. And that's actually a pleasure as a reader viewer because you have to use your own brain to fill in the blanks. So I think there's a lot of fun with that. And I, it was pretty basic with the Thoreau book. I was just going to move through the year. And, you know, once you get into these things, the themes just come to you. And it's like my students who say they have trouble with titles uh, for things. And I'm like, well... If you brood and obsess over these things, the titles, and you have a basic writing ability, the titles are going to jump into your brain. I mean, these things are going to come to you because you're obsessed with them. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I think a lot of writers um, will appreciate that, that, that hear the podcast, this kind of movement of different aspects of the book, narrative and research and and time and actual movement, right? Moving forward as a person in time or outside or whatever it might be. So I didn't get to any of the questions that I wrote down 
which which is which, I'm sorry. no no which is the perfect I told you I'm, I'm, that no that's the best that's the best interview um if i have to get to my questions that means we're not chat, we're not talking and so i prefer not even to look at my sheet and so uh we appreciate Can I just say one thing about research sure. case cuz yeah. you mentioned it yeah is i had a student a great student who wrote a great book and my advice to him was do what i do which is i research in the moment of time, like I'll, I'll be typing and writing a piece and then I'll stop and research. And he was like, are you crazy? Um, he did all he and, and he was right. He did all his research before outlined everything before. And then he wrote. And basically, he was living the throw lesson be thyself based, right? Mm -hmm. My style is to jumble it all together. And there's a I can't remember who said it, but I love the line. Uh, good writers make outlines great writers throw them away mm -hmm. and so my my stuff and i was trying to foist my jumbly style on his organized style and that didn't work for him yeah so i mean that's part of the process too is figuring out not just who you are on the page but who you are as a worker and organizer of your work and that's experience basically Right. Absolutely. And I think maybe it's the confidence to know, too, that you can move out of writing for 20 minutes, do research and be able to come back in. Exactly. You know, yeah. I think some some writers who are just getting started, they they're they're scared that if they get on the Internet for for research or whatever it might be, they're never never coming back to their to their manuscript. And so, yeah, I think that's part of a probably part of being a writer for uh, 30 years. Um, and having the confidence to believe in your, your, you know, your, what you said, your momentum to get back in. So no, we appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm so glad you're talking. Like I said, I didn't, I didn't ask any of my questions, but that's a really good thing. That means that we really had a conversation and that's my favorite type of podcast. I really enjoyed the book and, um, I've shared it with a lot of people on social media just because I feel like it was a great look at how you know things in our world and things in our life are so cyclical and that men have been th men and women have been thinking about these types of ideas for so long um and we just don't we just don't have the answer to a lot of them yet especially in utah it rained last you know, it rained two days ago yeah finally finally and i think that you know i everybody you wouldn't believe what happened around here? I was actually on social media and people had, people were standing outside in the rain. People were, you know, opening windows. People were playing music. People, that rain came to us and it was like the catharsis that we needed at least for a little bit, at least for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully it won't keep going because then the catharsis will turn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and climate change is so huge here in the West and we're facing it every day. So you want to read uh, another piece to end to wrap this up? Uh, let's sure. Let's do that. Yeah, this is a whole different throw. This is a, we mentioned my daughter and the veganism. She, um, she was one of the first to get out of our house. Uh, and she was involved in a protest downtown for George Floyd. And so, as I mentioned, each chapter uh, has a the month and then it has the COVID deaths that month. And then it, it usually has a theme and the theme of June was civil disobedience. And so uh, here's, here it is. And this was, uh, I should mention, it was a high school student protest specifically that high school students had, had uh, organized. While the kids chanted and marched and listened to speeches, I lurked on the other side of the street 
I felt like a secret service agent, though to others I might have looked like someone a secret service agent would be watching out for. Long-haired, bearded, wearing a mask, eyes scanning the crowd. At one point, a character even more suspicious than me showed up. A scraggly, scowly-faced man who rode an ancient ram-horn 10-speed bike through the bank parking lot across the street from City Hall. The man paused on the bike and began to scream, shut the fuck up, over and over at the high school kids. I moved closer to him, and so did one of the cops stationed near the rally, who, not incidentally, was African-American. You're going to mace me, the man yelled. I got a fucking gun. Luckily, he didn't. And after the cop approached and had talked to him for a while, he petulantly rode away. I backed off, but stayed vigilant. Hadley, my daughter, made it safely through the afternoon, and the most anyone in her group suffered was some minor heat stroke. Compared to those being shot with rubber bullets or knocked to the ground by cops, they suffered little, and compared to the victims like George Floyd, who had spurred the protest, they suffered not at all. But there was a risk. There is always a risk. That is the math of protest. What are we willing to give up to try and affect the change we want? Are we willing to sacrifice our private pleasure for the public good? Are we willing to interrupt our oh-so-precious lives? It is dangerous business leaving the woods behind. It is scary out in the streets. Of course, it is more complicated than that. In at least one case, the ideas that inspire those on the streets were born in the woods. I'll let Martin Luther King have the last word. This is from his autobiography. I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. No other person has been more eloquent and passionate in getting this idea across than Henry David Thoreau. As a result of his writings and personal witness, we are the heirs of a legacy of creative protests. The teachings of Thoreau came alive in our civil rights movement. Indeed, they were more alive than ever before, whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. These are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that's one of those chap. That's one of those sections that I remember well from the book, and it it is because it is the it is the move between narrative to Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King to Thoreau to uh, the and the merging of all those different narration types. Um, that's those are my favorites. Those are my favorites. Thank you for sharing with us today. This is David Gessner, and his, we're talking about his book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. This is a literally podcast recording from Banyan One on Historic 25th Street in Ogden, Utah. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Case. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs>